0: Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be with you this morning and I want to uh, thank everyone on the worship team that led us in worship today. Thank you so much and for the wonderful reading of scripture we just heard. Um, this is a powerful passage. I want to thank Dean Still for the introduction and also for the privilege of being here and being able to speak with you today. Those of you who know me well know that I'm not much of a manuscript preacher, but today I will be sticking a little more closely to the manuscript because there are a number of things I want to touch on today um that are a bit more complicated than my mind can always hold in memory um i do want to read one verse before i begin one more time in chapter two verse two for i decided to know nothing among you except jesus christ and him crucified let's pray dear lord i pray now that you would take up these words of mine to be taken up by your spirit for your own self-proclamation so that christ might become alive to us that he might be present in us that we might be alive and in him and that we would fall in love again with the gospel we ask this in your name amen this is a beautiful day um, fall day and i i love these days where the heat breaks and it's close to homecoming but that also means we're close to midterm so i know that's not so good for all of us um some of us love school so much we just never left it and we're kind of stuck here uh, in this eternal school year. Some of you are going to leave, but it seems this is part of my vocation and I, I live by the calendar of the school year. My daughter is 13 and she's doing schoolwork and doing math and that reminded me of the things when I was young that I used to study in math and there were some kinds of math I liked and some I didn't like, but one I thought was okay was geometry. I liked shapes and how they worked Squares were pretty easy. You had four lines of the same size and you had angles of the same size and they remained the same. You had triangles, those were three sides and you had shapes that had more sides but the words got more funny. But circles, circles were different. I learned that a circle was not so much about sides but about a center. From this center, lines went out in all directions and those directions hooked up with points all along what came to be called a curved line or a circumference. That curved line encircled, went around the entire center. The line from the center to the circumference called a radius, in a sense, tethered every point of the circumference to the center. I liked school. It was a break from the work on the farm of where I grew up. But the real hands-on education i got about circles I received not in school but on the farm We called circles on the farm tires, and I had to change a fair amount of them over time on different kinds of farming implements. And one thing I learned pretty early is that it is easier to roll a tire than to carry it. But I also learned that a tire, when rolled in front of you, can take off on its own down a hill, and it kind of went where it wanted with little reason, eventually falling over after you ran after it. We sometimes think that the wheel was the big great invention of the ancient world but a wheel is just a wheel and it doesn't do much on its own. The real invention is the wedding of the wheel to the axle, what we call a simple machine. Now the physics of all, how all this works is really above my pay grade but the gist of what I want to point out is that when a wheel is attached to an axle it can go somewhere and it can do real work. So a tire, the wheel, on the axle of a car is fixed and given energy from the axle so it can move in a purposeful way and is giving meaningful direction. A tire turning on a fixed axle is very different from a tire rolling on its own down a hill. A tire like that unattached from an axle as a fixed center is unmoored and without direction. It can roll fast and it can go places, but its movement is without purpose and it's ultimately unsustainable. All rolling tires eventually fall over. I learned this having chased a number of them down a slope. A wheel, therefore, finds its true end as it turns slow or fast around a stationary axle, just as a circle's points on a periphery are bound to its center. When the center is lost, the circumference collapses, and there can be no circle without a center. In the same way, when a wheel becomes detached from an axle, It may move pretty fast, but it lacks a unifying direction or purpose, and eventually it topples over as its energy is depleted. The point of this lesson, which some of you may think belongs more in Baylor's science building than in its seminary, is actually not that complicated. The cross is the center of the church, and the circumference is the periphery where the church deals with issues within itself and without, in the world, And the sum total of all the points of its ministry are entailed by the gospel. If the church clings to the center, it can face anything on the periphery. But if it trades the center for anything on the periphery, it will lose everything. It will be like a circle with no fixed center, like a wheel detached from the axle around which it moves, traveling fast but traveling to nowhere in particular, unmoored from that which gives direction and purpose to its movement. And this brings us to our passage today. The first problem that Paul introduces in 1 Corinthians is the problem of disunity and division in that church. Had Paul lived today, he perhaps would have no doubt been encouraged to host a workshop on conflict management, but that's not what he did. Paul does something different. He does not begin with pragmatically tackling this problem on disunity or any of the others that will follow, but he begins with a lesson on the cross. There's something almost jarring in this introduction of the cross right after introducing this problem of disunity. Our practical American inclinations would seek a more pragmatic approach, but Paul turns to provide one of the most important discussions on the cross in the New Testament. In 18 chapter 1 18 through 25 he begins by talking about the cross itself for Paul the cross is the starting point for reflection upon the church and all of the Christian the Corinthians various problems this is so because the cross of Christ is the center of the church and indeed of all human history the pivot of the turning of the ages the cross marks not only the division of all history from BC to AD between all things before Christ and all things after, but the point, the axis, around which all of history rotates, Christ's death and his resurrection, which Paul speaks about at the end of this book, change everything. The cross is a mystery that cannot be exhausted. It addresses both human sin and cosmic tragedy. It deals with a world that is alienated from God, which God reconciles to himself, and a world of fallen powers that God defeats. It reveals that we stand not only in sin's captivity, but under its condemnation, and that Christ is not only our liberator, but our substitute and our representative. Each of these themes is present in the New Testament and indeed in Paul's letters to the churches. Moreover, for Paul, the message of the cross is not only the account of what God accomplished in the death of Christ on a dark day outside of Jerusalem a long time ago, It is something that is a message, a living message, a dynamic proclamation of this crucified Messiah, which is empowered by the Spirit to convict and convert its hearers. The message of the cross is, as Paul asserts, foolishness to a perishing world which rejects it, but it is, he asserts, the power of God by which the world is saved and through which the Corinthian church came to be. Moreover, the cross is not accidentally the means by which God has saved the Corinthians and all who believe. It is the means God determined by which the world is reconciled and redeemed. The cross signifies not simply the tragic death of a good man to state terrorism or religious zealotry, or the divinely ordained, but it is the divinely ordained means of the world's salvation. The New Testament points to the cross as a mystery that is unfathomable in its depth one in which the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world was slain from its very foundation. Jesus submitting his will to a divine decision rooted in eternity. In the Synoptic Gospels, Christ tells his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and to suffer and die, and he will give his life as a ransom for many. Christ's death, as accounted in the Gospels, is no accident, but the culmination of his life and ministry, indeed the very purpose for which he came. And he goes to it with resolve, setting his face to go to Jerusalem. In John's gospel, Jesus states that no one takes this life from him, but he lays it down willingly. The same perspective holds for the rest of the New Testament. In the book of Acts, Peter describes Christ's death in the first sermon ever given as according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And in a book attributed to him, he says, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Paul in Galatians and later in Ephesians states that Jesus gave himself up to death for us, an offering, a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He elsewhere states that Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, and that this one has died for all so that all have died and shall not live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul will simply say that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. For Paul, Christ's death was for us and for our sins. Christ became a curse for us and was made this made sin itself for our sake in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's death proclaimed in the word of the cross is at the heart of the gospel. And this message is, as Paul states in our passage, idiocy to the world. To speak of the divine in the same breath as the crucifixion of a Jewish criminal was the height of foolishness to both Jews and Greeks who thought of the divine only in terms of glory and power. Justin Martyr, commenting later on how contemporaries perceived the Christian message of the cross, set forth the essence of their outrage. For they proclaim our madness to consist in this, that we give to a crucified man a place second to the unchangeable and eternal God, the creator of all. The cross is not only foolishness to human reason, but an affront to human pride. The cross demonstrates that God in Christ has not only acted first while we were yet sinners, but God in Christ has acted alone. For there's nothing that we've contributed to this act of salvation. Moreover, God in Christ has acted in opposition to the world, to its darkness, the cross condemning its sin and unrighteousness such that the cross does not so much comfort as confront those who hear of Christ's death, even as it also demonstrates the mercy of God to us in forgiveness. That God acts first, acts alone, acts in opposition to our pride and sin, even as this judgment is the very means by which mercy is shown to us, entails that the message of the cross endures up to this day as a scandal and an affront to a proud and self-sufficient world that values initiative, self-creation, self-reliance, and the autonomy and finality of its own personal and political moral judgments. That the cross is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews here in Paul's letter to the Corinthians parallels the manner in which God's righteousness stands in judgment over both Gentiles and Jews in the opening chapters of Romans. As both are unified in unrighteousness in Romans, such that there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so Paul unifies the Corinthians in the message of the cross, which has shown their previous wisdom to be foolishness and their wealth and power and social standing to be of no merit to God. Yet the message of the cross, which appears to be foolishness to the fallen world, is in truth the power of God for the Corinthians' very salvation. The cross unites all within the church under the same condemnation, but in so doing unites them all under the same divine mercy. Everyone in the church in Corinth therefore stands together with the other members within it, shoulder to shoulder, on level ground under the shadow of the cross, What unites them is much greater than what divides them as Jews and Gentiles, men or women, slaves or free. What unites them is a common judgment upon their shared sinful past and a common mercy calling them into a new future, a grace that is greater than all their sin. Paul turns from considering the content of the message of the cross to its its recipients in Corinth and here he puts their pride in check. Not many of them, he says, were wise according to the standards of the world, or powerful, or of high social standing. In pointing this out, Paul reminds them that the gospel of the cross that appeared foolish to the world was mirrored in the world's dismissal of those who were chosen by it and accepted it. What the cross and God's call demonstrates is that grace is transgressive of social expectations. As Ambrose Astor summarized this verse, but God is not elitist in his choice of believers. While early critics of Christianity like Celsus mocked Christianity for its appeal to women and slaves and the uneducated and the weak-minded the early Christians made no excuse for this commenting on this verse John of Damascus observed he that is god called us not called not uneducated not only uneducated people but the poor those easily despised and the undistinguished in order that he might humble those who had power but neither Does God choose the simple-minded, the lowly, the weak, or the poor because of an intrinsic moral superiority that they possess, as if they themselves would have a reason to gloat before God? Rather, salvation comes regardless of worldly status, high or low. Paul teaches not so much a reversal of fortunes according to the world's values, but an undermining of them all on all levels. The gospel is a scandal for some because it embraced not only the rich and powerful, but the poor and lowly. But it was and remains scandalous now for others because it embraces not only the poor and lowly, but the rich and powerful. For some, the scandal is that God would call Gentiles or women or slaves. For some others, the scandals that God would call Jews or men or masters. Not many of you were wise and powerful and noble, Paul writes, but some were. Jesus embraced not only the Samaritan woman at the well, but the Roman centurion, He showed mercy not only to the woman caught in adultery, but to the rich tax collectors, Matthew and Zacchaeus. To the great chagrin of the rich and the powerful of the ancient world, God reached out to the poor and lowly, but to the great chagrin of many others then and now, God reached also to persons who were rich and powerful. That may be as big a scandal for some as that God called those of little standing, that the gospel might save not only those who occupy Wall Street, but those who work there will never be a popular message. As the commentator Hans Konzelman said, Paul preaches not resentment but freedom, and resentment can be as destructive as pride. The gospel of the cross is more radical than a division between the haves and the have-nots, the upright and the downtrodden. It's radical message is that we bring nothing, not our wealth, not our poverty, not our power, not our weakness, as a merit to a holy God. This does not mean that there are not particular dangers for the rich and powerful that hinder their entering into the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus amply warned. That God so often reaches out to those who live at the bottom of society should give hope to all who find themselves there and serve as a warning to all those at the top. But poverty is not an automatic virtue, nor wealth an insurmountable barrier to grace. In the end, God has acted in the cross such that as Paul states, no one may boast in the presence of god grace is grace because no one deserves it mercy is mercy because all before god have fallen short and are unrighteous there are no cards of merit to play so in this letter to the corinthians paul never writes to some members of the church over against others even as he can chastise the wealthy for their treatment of the poor at their common meals He consistently addresses them and writes to them as one group, the church. He will not play into their tribalism or their disunity. All are one in Christ. All are both judged and saved by the same cross. All are the recipients of the undeserved grace of God. This God, Paul states, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It is good then to remember that we have these things in Christ and not in ourselves, and to rediscover that the cross is a scandal to the world not only because it appears to be foolish, but because it's offensive. Grace is offensive. It has always been so, as when Jonah waited on a hill for a judgment that was so well deserved and never came. It is offensive because it's shown to people who have not deserved it. Mercy. They haven't deserved mercy precisely because they have done horrible things, horrible things. John Newton wrote amazing grace that saved a wretch like me because he looked back on his slave trading days with horror and was amazed that God would save him. Later, working for the abolition, the abolishment of the slave trade, he wrote, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Newton is not alone in his understanding of what's so amazing about grace and how undeserving he was for it. My second son is named for a man who was killed with the blessing of the author of the letter we are looking at today. Paul watched with approval as the rocks were hurled at Stephen, a servant of the church. It is impossible to imagine that that day of Stephen's execution was not seared into Paul's mind and that he did not revisit it later in his life. In its light the awesomeness of grace was not something that Paul simply taught but something he deeply experienced and at which he marveled. Stephen's final plea that God not hold this sin against his executioners directly echoes that of his Lord as Christ from the cross asked his father for the same thing, that God called Paul shows that Stephen's prayer was answered. Everyone who has ever belonged to a church has questioned whether God's entrance requirements for the church were too low. Everyone knows someone in their church they probably would not have picked to be there. And make no mistake, there is at least one person in your church who would not have picked you either or me that god has called each of us and blessed us with his salvation shows us not so much that god has a sense of humor but that his grace is beyond our human comprehension god would remind paul would remind the divided corinthians of precisely this next paul turns from discussing the content of the message of the cross and then the recipients of the message to his role as its apostolic messenger just as the message of a crucified Messiah appears as foolishness to the world and comes to the lowly of the world, so Paul, as the apostle of the message, mirrors its lowliness with its recipients. The weakness and fear and trembling of the apostle paralyzes, pa- parallels the simple, weak, and lowly persons chosen by God to shame the wise and strong and noble. The gospel's apostle and recipients together reflect the foolishness and weakness of the cross, As God chose the scandal of a crucified Messiah to save the world and chose the scorn of society with the selection of persons of low social status to shame the wise and powerful, so God chose the word of the cross to come through the simple proclamation of an apostle who came to them not with lofty words of wisdom, but who appeared in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Instead of rhetorical eloquence or linguistic beauty, Paul relied solely on the Spirit to convict and convert those who heard the message of the cross. His only decision was this, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross puts forward the eternal mystery of God, the salvific work of Christ, and the effective power of the Spirit. It does not put forward the apostle. For faith rests not on eloquence, but on the power of God. And Paul will later say, woe to me, if I do not preach the gospel. For Paul, the message of the cross is the message of God's glorious salvation that has come to the world through the death of Christ as this death is announced and proclaimed to the world through the power of the Spirit. It should be unsurprising by now, in light of all that we have seen, that the cross is the center that frames all Paul will address later in the letter, whether questions of worship, corporate life, or personal behavior. All of these discussions occur in the shadow of the cross. With the center in the message of the cross of Christ, Paul was able to address all the problems of the church on the periphery. As one commentator has noted, Paul had a coherent core from which he addressed all of the contextual and contingent problems he had to face in the churches. He started from the center of the gospel of God's judgment and mercy shown in the cross and moved from there to address all the various issues the church in Corinth faced. Paul always thought of the Corinthians and even its weakest members and perhaps especially them as those for whom Christ died in his words as his letter attests later. Christ's death gives the Corinthians immeasurable worth even as they have nothing to boast about before the Lord for as Paul says elsewhere the only thing in which he will boast is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The moral of this Corinthian story is that when the church clings to this center, it can face anything. But if this center is sacrificed, it loses everything. The danger of abandoning this center, however, is strong. It was present in Paul's day and remains so in our own. In the mid-20th century, H. Richard Niebuhr looked over the landscape of the American church and he summed up the essence of the Christianity he found in much of it. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. This is a warning for us. Some may object, seeing this warning as leading to a private, individualistic faith. But the message of the cross when truly heard, experienced, embraced, and understood is not a call for passivity. Clarity on the sacrificial and singular act of Christ on the cross drove Paul and should drive us to reflect on its exemplary character, but only in that order. What Christ accomplished on the cross is something he does without us, with no assistance, something which he alone can do. In the cross, we are reconciled to God. But the cross, which displays that God in Christ acts first and acts alone and acts in opposition to a world of darkness, also displays Christ's self-sacrificial love as the pattern we are to follow inviting us to live in gratitude and correspondence to this by showing love to others. The cross which reconciles us to God is the very basis by which we can be reconciled to one another. The love we have received and returned to God because of the sacrifice of Christ leads us to the very love by which we might love our neighbor as ourselves in a sacrificial way. For this reason, the statement that those who are heavenly-minded are of no earthly good has always been wrong. It is those most clear of the gospel and its amazing nature that have labored to extend its echo in the world. And from those Christians who, and this has always been true, from those Christians who collected infant girls, who were abandoned on the mountains and hills outside of Rome, left to die, to John Newton, whose experience of God's amazing grace led him, like others like William Wilberforce and the former enslaved Alato Equiano, to take up the cause of the abolition of slavery. All of the church's acts of love and kindness and righteousness in the world, and for its betterment, are entailments of a gospel that drives us to the periphery. But all of these different actions of love of neighbor on the periphery are tethered to and given life by the cross of Christ at the center. To remember this provides the church with the way forward to live and minister in the world without passivity or despair. When I was a pastor, I at times felt overwhelmed and given to despair. Not by the problems in the church, which could be significant, nor by the challenges of the culture, which also could be daunting and disorienting. Instead, I felt overwhelmed by the flood of good things that beckoned us to their participation. Every week in my office, I would tackle a tall stack of mail, and I was disheartened by all of the good things to which an appeal was made to our church. There were organizations that helped persons in need with paying utilities. There were a number of organizations that worked with the homeless in our city. There were numerous shelters for persons in all sorts of need. There were food banks and clothing drives and counseling centers and addiction programs and ministries to assist single mothers and English programs for speakers of other languages and refugee resettlement programs. Beyond these local ministries, there were nonprofits that strove to provide clean water to persons in various countries. There were organizations that worked to liberate women in slavery around the world. On and on it went. Now, do not misunderstand what I'm saying. All of these are good things, and Christians are called to them, and Christians called to them in their full time vocation or in volunteer capacity should be supported by churches in this work. And churches themselves may find themselves especially called to some of these ministries. The church of which I was a part partnered with a number of these. And the local church should work to address such things. But in truth, no single local church can address them all or all of them equally well. But every single local church must have the same center, even if it engages different points on the periphery of the intersection of service to the world. No matter how much mail I received and no matter how much I and the church wrestled and prayed and sought to discern to know what forms of ministry we were to be engaged in at the periphery between the church and the world near and far, there was something I knew that had to be done by our church, all churches, with no exception, with no compromise, and that was to proclaim and witness to the gospel of a crucified Christ who died to take away the sins of the world and to give us new life and hope through the resurrection. This was the one thing that the church could do that the world could not do. The heart of the church's very being and existence. In view of this, the temptation of the church is not simply to substitute the good for the bad, but the one thing necessary for the many that are good. It is tempting to replace the center with the periphery because issues on the periphery are pressing. There are problems galore in our world. They can be political and social and cultural. They can pertain to persons physical or mental health or all kinds of economic and emotional needs. There are and always have been hungry persons to feed, homeless persons to shelter, counseling to be offered, injustices to be addressed, policies for which to advocate, abused persons to protect, children who require an advocate in the legal system, a tutor in the school, or a mentor in life, and the list continues on and on. Our world is full of crises of family dissolution, mental health and depression, poverty, environmental and weather disasters, racial, marital, parental and other forms of strife. Do I really need to go on? All of these things are and should be addressed by the church at the periphery. The church that is grounded in its gospel center is driven to these needs in the world. It approaches them with no utopian fantasy nor with cynical despair. It does not place blind trust in human goodwill but it does trust that a God who could raise a dead Messiah can bring unexpected and miraculous changes of hearts and lives and systems and structures from the abolition of slavery to the falling of the Berlin Wall. And the church frees its members to live their vocations in the world and to join with others in addressing these pressing issues of the day with Christian compassion and charity. But all of these engagements receive their impetus, their power, their endurance from the center. Every engagement at the periphery ultimately finds its meaning in Christ at the center. This Christ is one who has died for us, and all we do at the margins, at the periphery, is done in his name and calls persons to faith in him, to his death and resurrection. The gospel reminds us and holds us accountable to the truth that whatever needs we might meet in the lives of persons as we should, there is a deeper need still, and one that only can be met as persons come to know Christ as they are reconciled to God and awakened to faith and obedience as they are transformed by the Spirit. And if we think that this latter talk of knowing Christ and being reconciled to God and being transformed by the Spirit is fluff talk added to the real work of meeting people's material and financial needs or fighting some kind of culture war or war for justice or preserving or overthrowing the American way of life or any other way of life, then we best leave the church for more efficient forms of political activism or private employment where we feel more at home. The disciples could have turned to a relatively steady income from fishing. They could have returned to it. But they decided to stay with Jesus because, as they said to him, you alone, you alone have words of eternal life. And they realized that a person does not live by bread alone, not even by the miraculous food of five loaves and two fishes. And for those who were satisfied with that kind of sustenance, Jesus reminded them that his ultimate purpose was not simply miraculous food distribution, but death in Jerusalem, and that this was the most important reason for which he had come. The cross was not a tragic peripheral event in an otherwise remarkable life of miracle performances or moral instruction. It was as Jesus and the entire testimony of the New Testament portrays it, the very end for which he came. Jesus once asked, What does it profit a person if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And what can be given in exchange for it? If this is true for a person, it is true by analogy for the church. For if the church exchanges the cross, the stake that God in the fullness of time drove in the ground around which all the ages revolve, the stake which both displays God's righteousness and his mercy, his judgment against human evil and wickedness and his forgiveness of evil and wicked persons, the stake by which he reconciled the world and slayed the powers of evil, the stake to which the church was and is and must be tethered, then what will be given in exchange for it? What can anchor a church that is engaged in numerous points on the periphery but has lost its center? Perhaps the church can be satisfied with performing acts of charity or service or kindness in ways less efficient and focused than organizations centered upon such a single need. But this was and is not the church's mandate given it by Christ or the apostles. The center must be the center and the periphery the periphery. The center must drive us to the periphery with all the energy we may have. But when any point on the periphery replaces the center, the church is not itself. And the message of the church becomes at best a generic humanitarianism and at worst an ideology. Power loves a vacuum. And if the gospel, the very power of God for our salvation, is not at the center of the church, some other ideology of power will fill it. When the gospel center is lost, the church becomes a tire rolling slowly or quickly, but untethered from the axle that gives it its strength, purpose, and direction. The church does not choose its message, but receives it. The church is a people called by God and commissioned for the proclamation of the gospel and the making of disciples. It is not simply a collection of people of goodwill with a generic message of well-being. I must bring this to a close. Sermons are not supposed to have too many points, and tradition states that three are enough, but this message has but one thing to remember. The cross is the center of the church, and a church can face anything on its periphery if it is grounded in the gospel of the cross at its center, But it will in time lose everything if it trades this center for anything, no matter how good, on the periphery. Paul stated that he was determined to know and proclaim but one thing to the Corinthians, the cross of Christ. But he was able to take up all of the problems of that church, from their immorality to their lawsuits, from their feasts in pagan temples to their mistreatment of the poor and powerless at their common meals because of this one thing necessary, the cross which shows us not only what God has done and who we are, but how we are to be and how we are to live and how we are to love may we never be ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation and may we proclaim christ's cross and glorious resurrection to a world that needs it today as much as it ever has and my small hope is that we may never look at a circle or a tire in the same way again let's pray dear lord we thank you for your word We pray your blessing upon us as we leave this place and that you would allow your word to sink into our hearts, that we might live live it and be driven from the center to the periphery of the world in which we live. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's continue in worship and reflect on those words uh, by standing and singing.